Hello and welcome to another episode of Unsourced Wall. My name is Elvis and as always, I am your host. Alright, so it's now November. I still don't have a theme for Thanksgiving or whatever is going to happen, but I think I have an idea. I'll post it on Twitter after I post this episode up. Anyway, let's get into first some news. I'm going to be carrying over what I did last week in which I only talk about the news that I actually give a shit about. So I'm just not repeating or droning on about something that clearly doesn't need to be talked about if it's just nothing. But let's start off some movie news because we actually have some interesting movie news. Fascinatingly enough, we do have casting for Black Mask in the Birds of Prey movie. And not only that, but the Birds of Prey movie is aiming to be an R-rated movie. I'm guessing for, you know, content and just the atmosphere and all that kind of stuff. I think they mentioned it being very humorous. The director was talking about that in a recent interview. So that's really interesting. But Ewan McGregor as Black Mask, that's fantastic. I think he could do amazing things. There's never been a role in which I dislike Ewan McGregor in it. Other than the fact that he has had some roles where he does that really cheesy Midwest American accent and I just can't stand hearing his voice when he talks like that it's truly horrifying to have to sit through and he does it in Big Fish he did it in I Love You Philip Morris I think he did a little bit of a better version of it in Fargo season 3 but overall I think he's a solid and really really entertaining actor I think that's probably one of the big gets for me that I'm definitely going to be trying to check out in this movie it seems like such a, an unexpected but also very welcome casting decision it seems to have a knowledgeable and put on head on its shoulders so so far so good right in other movie news we do have some more forward momentum with the flash gordon reboot i know that a while back it was announced and i mean a while while back it was announced that the script for this new reboot had hired the screenwriters for the jj abrams star trek movie to be on it and i thought that was a really bad decision because it just kind of seemed this direction they were going to take was going to be one that was going to lean really hard on the supposed sci-fi nature of the series which i've never been entirely convinced by i know it's influenced sci-fi since then and has that kind of ray gun gothic thing but in my mind it's always been more of a science fantasy than anything else and not very sort of conducive to that whole sleek ipod apple aesthetic because there's witches there's fiefdoms there's kingdoms with swords and chariots and battalions so i never saw that as like being the cornerstone of flash gordon and what we have now is that the jj abrams produced overlord the director attached to that julius avery has been hired to direct the flash gordon movie anyway i hope that if it does come out i really just hope the best for it because i love this franchise i love flash gordon it's one of my most favorite reads of all time i love everything about the alex raymond run i think it's fantastic i have all the lab editions that titan publishing put out i think they're amazing i just don't want this adaptation to be crap i like the original movie but i always thought there was so much more they could do with it and going like ooh, sleek fun adventurous sci-fi is definitely not it that's definitely not the right way to go anyway i think that's it for movie news heading on into television news we don't have much i think the only notable things so far have been that marvel has announced including for its streaming service the vision will be a co-lead in the scarlet witch series that they already announced which seems i guess a natural execution of that idea especially since they tried really hard to make people believe that there is some romantic entanglement and chemistry between the two characters in infinity war which there definitely wasn't so i guess they really are trying to get their hand at this and maybe it'll work out maybe it'll be more believable now that we have more time to spend with these characters and see how they're written but i wouldn't count on it i really wouldn't and also in terms of tv news we have more set photos and promotional photos from gotham this time really highlighting Cameron Monaghan's take on the Joker. I think that even though the 
road to making a Joker appear as a character on the show was admittedly incredibly convoluted and just unpredictable. I think that was also to its benefit because it just made it such an exciting and unendingly funny ride to get to because you could just see that they wanted to go out and do like the most incredibly nonsensical things just to like keep the audience on their toes and just all worked and you're just really along for the ride. And I think that finally this final incarnation, this final look that they're going for in Cameron Monaghan's pictures and posts looks pretty fantastic. I think he looked fantastic in the finale the last season too, so I'm really excited for that. And I think that's it for news. I can't think of any notable comic news so far other than that the Jeff Johns penned Shazam solo ongoing has been or might be delayed until January 2019 rather than premiering this month or I think December. So I guess that's kind of notable after a five-year wait to get any news on this. A month or two more won't be that much but it does seem like kind of a shame that hey it's right there and, and it does feel somewhat cruel just to know that it's right out of reach maybe that's the true crush Shazam. i don't know anyway yeah that is definitely it for news and let's move on into what i read this week just to get it out of the way let's do the new ahoy comics released edgar allen poe's snifter of terror which is an anthology series that is going to focus on either an adaptation of an edgar allen poe story and then several other short snippets and comics from a variety of writers and artists like even Keck W and Mark Russell they contributed this first issue that can cover any kind of topic really and I mean any kind of topic because the Mark Russell short story which was the reason I definitely picked this one up not that I'm saying that anthologies and Edgar Allan Poe wouldn't have been appealing to me but this is one circumstance where Mark Russell really went out of his way to make sure people knew what he was writing and that it was legit and that it wasn't a prank and that it was totally readable and it was going to be something quite special and it actually turned out to be. Now this is going to be the only sort of story that I actually talk about at length because all the other ones are definitely worth your time and really does have a strong creative direction on its shoulders. There needs to be more horror anthologies that know to have a little bit more fun while also balancing off some scares and I do think that this is going to be something that is out to look for but the Mark Russell one just because it's so ludicrous I just want to talk a little bit more about it was that it is what he calls Count Chocula fan fiction and that's really what it is. It's a story. It's a classic vampire tale that just so happens to start Count Chocula. And I just, it's its mind-blowing because it doesn't try and cross over to that area where it would become too ridiculous, too silly, that step too far. It's not like he's a chocolate vampire. He's just a vampire who has his own chocolate cereal. And you have just all these other intimations. You have like his friends who are obviously Captain Crunch or the Lucky Charms Leprechaun kind of stuff. I know it sounds really kitschy and might sound a little bit, just a little bit too saccharine in terms of conceit, but no, it plays itself really well. It's It's got all of the classic you know, sort of Victorian era gothic vampire tropes and some, of course, an overlay of like the new romantic tropes that people like to place on that kind of era and that kind of style of vampire is actually really effective and engaging and I actually felt myself kind of invested in it. I think that it does tell a quite a lovely story. It could have even lasted on its own, I think. I would read more about this character. I actually would. And that's, that's really something that I didn't expect. So yeah, two thumbs up. I thought it was fantastic. Next up is Top Cat slash Superman number one, which is the continuation of Dan DiDio's Top Cat backup from one of the other previous first wave DC Hanna-Barrera crossover one shots. I think it was Adam Strange Future Quest. This is something that I've been waiting for for a long time because I, I love Top Cat and I actually kind of enjoyed the setup from the original backup which shows him trying to find Benny in the DC universe. That whole sort of foundational hook 
that's why this one was such a disappointment. It's not overtly bad. I think that there's some good parts to it and some good sight gags and punchlines, but it doesn't actually fall from that hook. The solicit mentioned that hook, but it doesn't come into play at all. I don't think it even gets mentioned outside, like maybe a brief one if I missed it. And it's just like a top cat working meets conflict interstruman type setup and it just feels very wishy-washy like it didn't even need Todd Kennick it could have been any kind of one use character and the story would have been exactly the same so it felt very restricted but overall like I said there's some good punchlines and gags in there but there's nothing like really cohesive bringing together because like just Top Cat is just a by player here and by the time it, the plot really gets going as it is you start wondering why we keep cutting back and forth and why anything is really happening it just feels very random and not in a good kind of way which is what I'm gonna bring up right next which is Deathstroke Yogi Bear which I I really enjoyed and it kind of felt very sort of scattered but in the way that these crossover one shots actually can pull off exceedingly well because Yogi Bear and this is another solicit change from what it was originally announced as I think the original solicit was about him trying to fight like the Yogi Bear spirit in the woods but this time when they actually finally came out I don't know why there's so many changes going on but Yogi Bear when it actually came out it's just Yogi Bear that's just him he's just a bear with a hat and a tie who lives to just steal picnic baskets and then he ends up finding himself in the middle of a giant kind of animal rabid breakout in the woods and that's it that's just the main plot real sort of deathstroke as plot like just ransacking and massacring your way through all of these animals and just against the odds aspect of all that you have all these really effective Frank Thierry-esque punchlines and sight gags and just the cynical and sardonic nature of the humor too. We have two guys who are arguing incessantly over whether or not Quick Draw McGraw is the fastest gun in the West. That's fucking great. That's a great little nod and beat. And I think that Yogi Bear and Deathstroke, they play off each other really well and the plot itself Feels like it could have been extended. I don't think it lands as much as it hopes to with, with its multiple epilogues, but it still felt very satisfying as just the execution of the premise and the hook. So I really enjoyed that. So one thumbs down to Top Cat, two thumbs up to Yogi Bear. Fuck yeah. And I think finally, but not least, is The Wildster number 18, which is the final issue before the hiatus and before it returns in January. And you can really tell that this is really where all the chess pieces are being set across the board. All the characters are coming together. Even Michael Cray is back after the thankful ending of his horrible, horrible solo spinoff. So I had expected and more or less really hoped that he would be back for the final arc because it just felt like there wasn't much to his exit the first time around and the horrible execution of his spinoff did nothing to really alleviate that. The spinoff had been really good and I mean like fantastic and just classic death blowy then I wouldn't be saying that. I think that if it had been really good Michael Cray's absence would have been like okay he's off here doing this really great stuff and I'm reading that back to back. It's like an extra facet of the story but it wasn't. It did nothing and it had no impact like a direction that no one had any actual energy about. So to see him come back it does feel weird because now there's nothing to fulfill that. I'm glad he's back I just wish that there was a bit more of a genuine threat as to why he's back. But yeah, final arc, people are coalescing to New York just like Voodoo predicted all the way back in like issue one or two. And it seems like no one is going to get out of this unscathed. We finally have Hellspawn appear and he's a kooky old man and it's fantastic and I just can't wait. I still believe that whatever is going to happen, it's only going to happen in the final issue and possibly even in the final pages. So I'm setting myself up with the expectations that not everything will be tied up neatly. So if that does happen and I'm pretty sure it will, I won't be 
disappointed or called out for things that I never actually promised. My only concern with number 18 as an actual sort of plot beat issue is that it brings in all these different threads together finally, but in terms of wrapping up the Project Thunderbug Gen 13 subplot that has been running through this arc, it doesn't really do anything to set up Burnout. It set up Grunge, it set up Fairchild, it set up Freefall and Rainmaker, but no Burnout, which feels kind of weird because historically it's Lynch's son, but Lynch doesn't have any kids, doesn't have any intimation that having a kid was any part of the plan here, and it's not even Whiplash's son or anything, which was my second guess about how he might fit in. There's no real kind of build up to that even being a possibility. So whether or not Burnout ever appears, it just seems like he's non-existent at this point. I really hope that we get more expansion on that because it does seem like kind of a weird thing to be just leaving out. But overall, I really enjoyed this issue. I thought it was pretty funny. I thought he did a good job really setting the board and neatly showing us where this final arc is going to go and how much of a roller coaster it expects itself to be. So I just can't wait for number 19 to come out and can't believe this is going to be ending like next June, next July. That's going to be amazing. Anyway, that's it for what I read this week. And yeah, small week, but overall, very satisfying. So let's move on into what I watched this week, which of course was Titans, a new episode of Titans. This one focusing on Beast Boy and introducing the Doom Patrol in their backdoor pilot. Now this one has an interesting backstory in, in that three of the characters in this backdoor pilot were actually recast for the main Doom Patrol spinoff. That being, of course, Brandon Fraser as Robot Man, Matt Bomer as Negative Man, and Timothy Dalton as the Chief. Now, since two of those roles are ADR dubbed over voiceover roles, the only thing that really sticks out in this episode is the Chief, who has a different actor, and they can't really hide that. And I don't think that have been cost-effective enough to restreet shoot those entire scenes, because some of the scenes that he's part of are very special effects heavy, and that would have obviously eaten the budget. But with terms of Robot Man and Negative Man, they just actually had the time to redub it, and there's a few pickup shots that were probably filmed during the filming of Doom Patrol, because I'm guessing they're using the same set that show, like, pictures of Brandon Fraser as, like, pre-accident Cliff, and I believe that that wouldn't have cost much in order to slip in really at the nail. So there's a little bit of jankiness, but I'll get to that later. Honestly, the episode itself, you can hardly tell. Overall, this episode was really, really entertaining. I think that Beast Boy's dynamic of pretty much all the characters Doom Patrol and the Titans, it works so well. And his back and forth and interplay with Raven is on par with her interplay with Robin. I think that both sets are just a joy to experience and watch. And they're definitely the highlights of the series so far, at least right now, because there isn't really a bad episode of these four. I do think that this episode is probably the weakest, if only that the B-plot, which is Robin and Starfire looking for Raven after she's escaped from the nuns, is kind of pointless. doesn't have any sort of meaning or thematic resonance. Like the first episodes had their B-plots. While this one, it just feels like, well, we had to give them something to do. And they go in directions that don't really make any sense. For example, Robin and Sidefire get a lead that they were seen by some hunters in the woods. They don't know who Beast Boy is yet, but they know that Raven was obviously there. So they track down the hunter and then Robin goes ballistic on him, starts beating him up, and it starts accusing him of like probably murdering her and hiding her in the woods, something like that. And it just doesn't make any sense. Like, where is the leap to that? The report that they hear is that the hunter has spotted them in the woods. But Robin just goes off and, of course, they're trying to stress the idea that Robin is a bit unhinged, that he's not dealing with some of his more violent tendencies that he grew while being a vigilante under Batman's care. 
fine. But this has nothing to do with that. This feels out of place. It feels like Robin has maybe even more problems and issues than just going off the handle. So yeah, that felt very forced, time-wasting. They could have come up with any kind of way to get Robin and Starfire to Raven's location, but they just came up with one that was almost entirely random, which is disappointing for this show. It's actually disappointing because usually while it can be over the top and it can be exaggerated, it's still working internally. But overall, like I said, the A-plot, Beast Boy, Raven, the rest of Doom Patrol, it all works. I think that Brandon Fraser and the suit actor for Robot Man, they do a great job showing Cliff's mental and emotional state, the entire sort of fun while also this dark undercurrent with the Doom Patrol, I think they hit that spot and that balance perfectly so that there's always an air of dread and menace. It's pervasive, honestly, maybe even perversive because the first things we get is that Beast Boy shows Raven his like room, like his play area. And it just has that feeling of like a prison. Like it's full of all these games and toys and movies and just off the wazoo of soda and all these sort of little distractions. But it's clear from the outset and from Beast Boy's sort of hesitation at questions that Raven has for him that shows that like, no, this is like the Neverland Ranch or like what people believe the Neverland Ranch was is like bait for kids. That's one of the whole pillars of that controversy that the Neverland Ranch was like bait for kids. It was meant to like keep them pacified. And that's really what this is. This is meant to be Beast Boy's pacification from the chief. It just adds like this really creepy and eerie sense to everything. And I loved it. I loved it. I thought that it was played excellently. Robot Man, I think that Brendan Fraser, the dourness and like the bitterness, but also just the, the nagging fear of losing hope. Like there's still some hope down in there and still some emotion and compassion. I think that he definitely does and pulls out all the stops of the voice there. Matt Bomer, there's not much to him as of yet. Comes off more of like the kooky kind of guy. There's some menace in a line he has later, but it doesn't really come off with as much impact as the sadness of Cliff or the sheltered and stunted nature of Beast Boy yet. It lasts the woman though. I think that while they could have done a little bit more, what they did with her was very, very enigmatic, supremely creepy and unsettling. The first shot we get of her as a tangible character, it is played to the hill. I actually got a little bit spooked. Like I wasn't quite sure what I was seeing. They pan over this room full of trinkets and it just slowly glides over and you process it as it's gliding over and it just spooked me out a little bit. And the actress plays it with such a damaged and also just very determined mood and personality and attitude. I love it. So that's what the episode is. Just setting them all up and to contrast the expectations for Raven as she kind of goes berserk under the chief's medical care. It works. It's a great episode. I thought that it really had an even handle about everything other than the B-plot. Chief, for his part, he does a great job too. And I think the writing is really strong for him because you can tell that what he's saying, even if he believes it, is still bullshit. I think one of his lines is that he's emphasizing that he saved all these people and that he's using them to hopefully bring humanity decades into the future with medical science. But then you realize that other than Beast Boy, all the other members of the Doom Patrol are already decades old. So he's already had them for decades and that nothing has been done. So it just adds that kind of like hypocrisy of his character off the bat. He's obviously not really thinking of their best interest or if he is, he's got his expectations of himself, his optimism about himself really out of whack and these people are not getting any better. I think that Tim Dalton will do a better job but just for first glance and first impression, I think they did a nice even job with him too. Great, that was really great. 
I think the only thing plot relevant thing that didn't work for me is how Beast Boy joins the Titans because the way they handle it they don't go for the way that would obviously work in the situation that would work on a character level because Beast Boy tries to protect Raven from the chief transforms a little bit and tries to attack the chief and he knocks him out and like I thought that would be like maybe he's going to join the Titans to get away from the chief to get away from any kind of punishment he might sort of engender because the chief also becomes paralyzed because of this entire interaction of Raven and Beast Boy bringing her there to begin with but no it just ends with like Roman saying Beast Boy you have a chance for life go but it's meant more like the you know you have to live your own life you should be free you should be like a young kid that kind of tone a little bit of a solo scene between the chief and beast boy where beast boy gets reprimanded and he's like on the verge of tears and all the chief is doing is just talking to him really really sternly and like they could have built that more up with why he had to leave especially after sticking up for himself and for raven against the chief but no it just felt like be free beast boy be a young kid and like and eh, that's not as effective i see what they're trying to do but it just doesn't work as much as it could have and i mentioned at the beginning of the episode and some flubs here of the editing and they only come really at the end one is that we get a shot of the doom patrol looking at the titans leave with beast boy and right before it cuts away you hear matt bomer's voice clip off one last one-liner as negative man and it's obvious that that's not how the episode played out before that line did not exist and they were really struggling to fit it in there the line is funny enough but it could have been cut and the episode was still been good. It doesn't add anything to the episode. It just makes it like so much more obvious that this was post the episode's actual production dubbing over. Another thing that kind of feels that way is watching the chief in his wheelchair looking out the window very somberly. It's the song at the end of Doctor Strange Love playing We'll Meet Again. And like it just cuts to his face a little bit. And then right before you get like a register on the face and on the song, it just cuts to the credits and it just feels very jarring. I don't know what was going on with that. Overall though, great episode. I really enjoyed it and I can't wait for the next episode. And I think the next episode is going to be really make or break because it's going to be focusing on the team as it is right now, training together, trying to fight the nuclear family. So yeah, hopefully that turns out well. But so far, so good. Alright, so this is going to be half a review too on the chilling adventures of Sabrina because I finally finished the entire first season. So I'm going to just get into it right now. Let's get started. Having finished the first season, does this change my perceptions on the first three episodes and my feelings on the show? Does it make me really enjoy it? Was I wrong about my belief of what the series was and where it was going? Not really. I mean, I think the easiest way to say it is that the first three, four episodes are absolutely the worst that the series has to offer. There is an actual uptick in quality after his first couple episodes, but it's not by much. And the fact that it's noticeable is that, wow, we could have started off with something that wasn't entirely crap but no we had to front load everything with the stuff that is just so horrible because really after those first couple episodes the really meandering pointless insanely handled slice of life teen stuff falls by the wayside like it just stops mattering not to say that all the teen melodrama stuff goes away entirely it just goes away enough so that it's not continually jarringly being put side to side with the stuff that is clearly trying to forward the plot and lore and all that stuff that isn't even interesting but it's a little bit more interesting and a little bit more actually focused good for the show but still it's just not all that really kind of engaging. Sabrina spends most of the second half of the show having this goal in mind, becoming powerful enough to 
summon a devil, and then banish the devil. But it's just a stated goal. Nothing she ever does really tries to push that envelope. And it only comes up once in order to kickstart an episode where she exercises a demon. But the effects of that one episode carry over to different episodes. So we stop having the time to actually develop it because all these consequences take over. And the consequences themselves lead to more melodrama. That is, again, less interesting than they plot actually having some forward direction because then we're left with this really annoying plot with Harvey. I don't know what they were planning to do with Harvey here. He's a dull and almost non-existent character. His characterization is literally just this. Sensitive boyfriend. Harvey is a kind, sensitive soul. He draws art. He is an artist. He doesn't want to work in a mining town. He can get out of here. He's a creative soul and who isn't a jerk. That's it. Like there's nothing entertaining about him. And like I'm going to say due to a question I have for later the original show wasn't like the deepest thing didn't have like really great characterizations and it was probably as shallow as this show is but the main difference though is that for how shallow it was and for how like point blank it could be the characters were written with actual entertainment value and they had actors that had personalities and charisma not just base likable like oh he's a nice guy that's all you can say about harvey and even then it gets overbearing by how much they try to push it like he becomes like a dry paint wall character and they even give him like the most cliche abusive father figure who even does the old you should have died instead of your better brother spiel and it's like come on do we have to go over this again and they give harvey like one interesting characteristic and they do nothing with it it's just there again to sideline and to spotlight how nice of a guy harvey is is that Oh, turns out that Harvey is descended from witch hunters. Do they do anything with that? No, it's like, oh, but Harvey's a witch hunter. He's a nice guy. And that's the end of it. Which seems like the most egregious thing because all of these like supernatural, romantic or soapy sort of shows, they do the whole love interest is X hunter thing. I zombie, main character of zombie. Love interest, major, for at least the first season, is a zombie hunter. Teen Wolf, main character is a wolf. Love interest, for like the first couple seasons, is a werewolf hunter. It just happens again and again. But with those two at least, they use that in mind some sort of Romeo and Juliet, really sort of torrid romance kind of themes, which can be fun in and of themselves. But here it's like, nah, he's, he's a nice guy. The end. Boring as hell. Boring as hell. And I know I'm talking about Harvey a lot, but Harvey really does take a lot of the brunt of like these last couple episodes because it deals with Sabrina's love to him and just feels very, very lame. Please, Harvey. Harvey was one of the most entertaining characters on the original show. And here he's like a plot device and a wet blanket. And my God, it's, it's such a downgrade. And the episodes themselves, like I said, they focus more on still like Sabrina goal in mind, lose the goal, and then has to go through this utter process that becomes a full witch. And this is somehow the plan of Satan all along. That was his great plan. What was his plan again? Look ahead next season when we explain more about it because we're not explaining it now. Every so often we get like, all according to Satan's plan. Fuck off. Boring. The most by the numbers antichrist thing ever. I know I mentioned last week that the comic that this is directly based on is a huge ripoff of other stuff like Rosemary's Baby and that this series at least is sidestepping it. Not so anymore because we have this part where Sabrina meets her mother's soul in purgatory and they steal a line directly out of Rosemary's Baby when she meets her mom's soul. And the mom's soul says, they told me my baby was dead. They stole it. The witches stole it. Which is direct from Rosemary's Baby. So that's another feather from its cap I need to take from it that I gave it last week. I guess it can be entertaining if you're like in the mood for sleep. 
But other than that, no. It just feels so boring and doesn't have any actual kind of energy. And the characters are all dull. They have hinges of something like could be interesting if they played it like a little bit more like entertainingly. Like nothing here is for entertainment value. It's all just to be kind of moody and atmospheric, but they don't ever do anything like fun with it. I know that being fun isn't like the end all be all for a series. You don't have to like be fun and kooky and really wacky, but they introduce a lot of concepts like her friends have these supernatural powers themselves. One of them literally has the shining and one of them can talk to the ghost of their ancestor. Kind of gives it almost a kid gang monster squad kind of atmosphere kind of feel to it, but just never capitalized on it and just feels like, oh wait, they can do that. Feels very matter of fact when they could have mined a lot more from it. Oh, another thing. Salem doesn't talk. They give pretty much Salem's entire attitude and role to Sabrina's cousin who gets some good lines. But again, he's just really subdued. Everything in this show is subdued and it's not to its benefit. And before I sign off, because I'm just going to give this season a grade right now, like two thumbs middle. Like it's not really bad, but it can be really dumb and it wastes a lot of its potential. And it's just really boring. Two middle thumbs. But one of the most egregious things it does is that it casts Richard Coyle in like the most boring stereotype of like the evil headmaster of the magic school, right? He talks like in a monotone every single time he appears and it's obviously not using Richard Coyle to any kind of effect. I think the best scene that Richard Coyle has in his show, he's not even playing that character. He's playing like a nightmare version of the character who gets like to ham it up and talk about how much he loves Hilda's vegetable salad. And it's like, it's the most hilarious thing because he's actually like doing something. He's actually emoting, playing it for like the darkly comedic tones it wants to have. It's honestly such a misuse of Richard Coyle who is such a great actor. Definitely not worth a watch. That's it for Sabrina's season one. That leads me into listener questions, but there's a little bit of linkage here. I do want to get into one more thing that I forgot to, which is that Sabrina season one actually is getting legally threatened by the Church of Satan because it used the statue of Baphomet design that they are claiming is theirs. And this makes me wonder about something about Nightbreed, which is the movie that Clyde Barker directed based on his novella, which is that they have in their movie a statue of Baphomet too, but it looks nothing like the traditional statue of Baphomet, you know, like human body, goat head, fingers down, fingers up, that kind of thing. They have an entirely different design. I'm wondering if whether or not they knew that they couldn't use the statue of Baphomet design that's so iconic without getting like in trouble with the Church of Satan and that Sabrina didn't know that or didn't care so they used that one instead but I don't know that's just me guessing but that's funny that's really really funny anyway time for listener questions and the first question ties back into Sabrina a little bit and it comes from the Great Illuminated who has started one of the new continuations of Hero Maker. One will of course be in Damn Comics, the anthology, and also one has just started on Tapas, which is a webcomic reading app. I'll post a link below. I've read it. It's fantastic and it's definitely well worth the time and seriously it's something you have to check out. It's brilliant. Anyway, Illuminated's question is, what are my thoughts on the original Sabrina the Teenage Witch show? Well, I think it's honestly really, really fun in a severely Silver Age kind of way. Like Silver Age Jimmy Olsen. Just how wacky and goofed up it could be. And let me just get this straight a little bit more. I think that the series does get worse as it goes along. I think that the high school seasons and maybe like the first college season are really, really tight and honestly packed full of just memorable and just incredibly funny episodes. But then like after the first four seasons and I think the last two or three, I focus way too much on very soapy stuff. Like it doesn't focus anymore on just having fun with magic powers and just like the wacky adventures they can get into. It focuses more on like on Sabrina's dating life and her personal career life and all these like really dramatic and melodramatic dramatic stuff 
to the point where like the magic itself just feels secondary to whatever problem she has of that episode which would not feel out of place in any kind of work com or like office comedy or anything like that and it's a shame because it just gets really really dragged out and lame but the first couple of seasons are really really good like I said in the review for Chilling Adventures of Brina, it's not a deep show it's not like something where you can say like the characters here are so well rounded and so well developed no they're caricatures they're very two dimensional at times but they have both the writing and the acting behind them to just make them pop out to make them really memorable like Mr. Kraft who was portrayed by Martin Mull Martin Mull is fantastic he is brilliant as Colonel Mustard in the Clue movie and here he plays his role as Mr. Kraft like to the hilt it's brilliant and he can be like so funny even though Mr. Kraft stays like pretty much throughout the entirety of his tenure on the show just this very stodgy Dean Vernon character and he never grows past that there's never like a why of Kraft episode no he stays that way and they were able to milk so many episodes out of that without feeling kind of faint about it so yeah i mean you also have harvey harvey is like again lovable nice boyfriend but he is at the brunt of so many episodes where everything goes wrong and he is the character who gets the most consequence from it and it's played slapstick effect so he's got this really dynamic position within the show that makes him so much more likable in effect not just like oh he's a nice boyfriend but no we do get to like him because any other person even if his mind gets wiped again and again would go mad just by having to be in the situation being turned into a frog or becoming a wolf man or having to climb a beanstalk or become a knight or becoming a silent era deadly do right parody it's ridiculous but it also works nick bakay as salem the cat what more can be said you could not you could not tell me that he is not the most memorable thing about that show and that's saying something because that show has a lot of memorable qualities highlights all about it's a great show it's very lively and it's also like i said like silver age jimmy olsen you don't know what the hell it's gonna do i rewatched this over the summer with my brother because it's on amazon prime and it would go on like these insane insanely whacked out directions in the best way possible. There was this video that Netflix posted to promote the new show where the old cast reacts to some clips from the new show and it really just highlighted the differences between that show and this show which is that these actors even if they're really mugging the camera oh this new show is so crazy and dramatic and scary they still have a lot more personality to them and there's one part where Nate Riche, the old Harvey Kinkle mentions that like he's bald now that the new Harvey's a bit more of a stud right and like that's debatable because like you are still one bald fox nate rache you are a bald fox anyway yes illuminated those are my thoughts on the original sabrina teenage witch show i don't know if you watched it it's definitely goofy and incredibly ridiculous and maybe you might have fun with it i'm not quite sure but overall it's still a really fun time anyway thank you for that question our second and last question comes from aki cat on twitter and their question is what archie spinoff would i want to be adapted as a television series and i'm guessing that they mean like a current archie spinoff like the archie horror stuff or like the new line archie stuff and this is a hard question because like i don't know where we would go i don't know if it would have to be something that would fit in with archie as it is now but i'm gonna go ahead and say archie's weird mysteries yeah just bringing that back. Just bring that show the hell back. I remember loving that show as a kid. And it was such a great time. It obviously ripped off or at least paid a little bit too much homage to like the movies that were out at the time. 80s horror movies and Twilight Zone episodes and all this kind of stuff. But we could always use more horror anthologies, can we? But on a more serious note, I guess the only thing that might be kind of interesting would be Jughead the Hunger. Why not? I mean, Wolf Jughead. That might be fun. I don't think the comic is all that great, but I think that might at least be kind of interesting. And you can mine something out of a werewolf story. I mean, like... <laughs> 
Teen Wolf lasted for 11 seasons. So yeah, there's always room for one more. Anyway, thank you for that question, Naki Cat. And well, I'm not that big of a fan of the new Archie shows, but I guess if I had to give two answers, those would be it. Anyway, that has been the questions that we've had this week. Thank you again. Thank you to you both. They always mean so much to me, and I hope I answer both of them to your satisfaction. It really does mean so much, and I'm always like completely astounded and grateful that anyone would ever ask questions at all. Without you guys and without anyone sending in comments or feedback or anything like that, there would be no show, and it means like the world to me. So thank you both, and thank you everybody, whoever has done it. And if you want to be able to send in your own questions, comments, or thoughts to be discussed on the show, then please you can look me up on Twitter at T-H-E underscore S-N-I-C-K-M-A-N. I just want to give a special shout out to the cover artists for this series at D-O-T-E-M-C-E-E. They do fantastic work and I think they still have some commission slots open. So check them out on Twitter. Anyway, just want to thank everybody for listening and I hope that your November has gone off to a good start. All right. Thank you and see you again next week.